Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the MMQB Monday Morning NFL Podcast. I am Gary Gramling. She is Jenny Prentice. We have some divisional round playoff games to go through. Conference semifinals. I think they should be called the conference semifinals. That is much easier to say. Divisional round is a mouthful and it always trips me up. It doesn't make sense unless the Titans now get to claim themselves as AFC North champions. Like it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, semifinals. Much better, Gary. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get it. We'll, we'll get the masses to follow us one day. But uh, uh, we had four, I mean, surprising games, wild games, interesting games, four, just four really good games this weekend. We're going to run through all of them. We are going to have a, a, an off-season look ahead for the teams that did not succeed in winning this weekend. And we're also going to talk a little bit about Kevin Stefanski as the next head coach in Cleveland. But uh yeah, we're gonna we're gonna work backwards through the uh, through the weekend here. We're gonna start with the the Seahawks Packers game, and look, this was uh, <laughs> I mean, the Packers just they were they were clinging for dear life in the second half of this game uh, at a time twenty one three lead at halftime, and they they just they couldn't put Russell Wilson away. Yeah, that was some of those drives late in the game where Russell just kept keeping plays alive with his legs, and he was just 
you know, leak outside the pocket and scramble for the first down and slide or run out of bounds. I mean, it was it was pretty amazing and really a reflection of just how he's the one-man engine that really powers the Seahawks' offense. But, yes, things got a little dicey there. But I kind of had a flashback a little bit to, like, the Patriots-Titans game and not just because of the – punt loophole that they were the, using to the wind clock games the, yeah. cl- the clock games but just kind of like all right here's the chance for the final drive and then oh it didn't go the way we expected and now there's not any more time to make the final drive um so I had that flashback a little bit but give Wilson credit he did basically everything possible he could to keep the team in the game it's like give give Wilson credit and look, they punted with a uh, little less than what was it? It was uh, I'll get the exact time two forty one to go when they when they punted that thing away, uh, and it was a fourth and eleven in their own territory. So it it, it was tough to say they've got to go for it there. Um, and look, the, the Packers needed to convert two third and longs on that last drive to put them away. Uh, we can talk about the Jimmy Graham spot a little bit, but uh, uh, certainly I, I think if you're a Packers fan, you, you probably got goosebumps on that Aaron Rodgers to Devontae Adams throw on third and eight. It was such a classic uh, Rodgers throw, and and of course, you know, it wasn't just like throw to the sticks. It's a, it's a 32-yard pickup, and he just dropped it in beautifully. Totally, and it was also one of those classic throws where you hear evaluators say, in the draft, we're looking for a quarterback who can make all of the throws. That was one of those throws, right? You're on the opposite hash mark and you throw a deep toward the outside of the field. I mean, it was exactly one of those difficult throws that you want someone with incredible arm strength and arm ability to be able to make. And which we haven't always been seeing Rodgers make this season. Those throws haven't been as routine for him this year, but of course in a huge moment. And like you said, Gary, they had them backed up in third and longs. The Seahawks had a chance, you know, they had them right where they wanted the Packers and Rodgers converts with this remarkable throw, which is kind of an answer to some of the, you know, there's been questions about the Packers this season and I've had them too. You know, are they as good as their record indicates? It's been kind of a quiet season. It's been a little bit of a different season. You know, they relied on a strong run game a lot. It hasn't always been Rodgers as the showcase there, but in that moment when they really needed to play, he gave it to them. But on the next one, I do think Graham was short of the first down marker. Yeah, it, it just kind of looked like it. I was I was actually really curious to know what the Packers would have done. Um, I don't know if anyone asked LaFleur in the postgame uh, what he would have done if that was a fourth in inches there, if they would have tried to put it away and go for it. Or obviously the Seahawks are out of timeouts at that point. So if you, you know, if they're starting a drive inside their 20, you would hope uh, if you're the Packers that you can uh, you can contain Russell Wilson from from driving basically 80 something yards in a minute in a minute and a half with uh, uh, no timeouts. But I don't know the way the second half went. I don't know if that's a gamble I take. Yeah, you know, to your point, it probably even if it even if they had marked him short, 
the Seahawks were still in a really tough position. But it was hard to see, you know, this is one of those situations, again, where you're like, this is why we have instant replay. We can patch together all these various camera angles. And they even said, we are sent. We got more camera angles. We received more. And it's amazing <laughs> just, to me that... That was weird. That was really weird. Had never heard that explanation before. And it's kind of like, well, with all of these angles, certainly you can patch together the fact that, like, the helmet was short of the goal or of the first down line and yeah. the elbow went down before the helmet went down so therefore the elbow was short of the first down line it seemed like it was a pretty easy process where there was definitive video evidence to make that call yep but uh i don't know i, I, I always think like uh, i guess it's kind of part of the home field advantage you get calls like that true I don't know. <laughs> It's it's not it's not gonna make Seahawks fans feel any better, but um, I always I always wonder if that's built in just a little bit, and uh, and of course the Packers were still in very good position even if that was a fourth and in inches at that point, although it would have been a uh, uh, boy would have been sweating that out. Yeah, I I guess when you look at the Packers, I I guess sort of the plus that you that you don't really. Uh, that was a little bit overshadowed in this game. The pass rush was good. The pass rush was getting around Russell Wilson. Russell Wilson is just, uh, he has escapability, and and that sort of foiled them a couple of times. Uh, if that was a lesser quarterback, you know, this might have been a nine-sack type of, you know, it, it might have been similar to, like, what they did to Kirk Cousins on a, on that Monday night game a, a couple weeks ago, and it just would have been an overwhelming defensive performance by Green Bay. Um, but the issue is they just... It was sustained offense in the first half, and then it just sort of disappears in the second half. And they just, you just haven't seen that full game from the offense. And uh, to me, it was just kind of reminiscent. They played some games the second half of the season. Uh, Kyle Allen in the snow almost came back on them. Uh, Trubisky almost came back on them. Uh, Washington hung around. It just not very good teams just sort of hanging around and and coming very close to to coming from behind and beating this team uh in Lambeau and it looked like Russell Wilson might have been the guy to to get it done today and they just stalled on that uh, on that last drive yeah it was really just that's exactly right they're in position they have that dropped pass that bounced right off the receiver's chest that would have mm-hmm. been a first down that was the uh the first down incompletion and then they ultimately punted on that fourth down um but the Seahawks if they had had like one or two more things you know what I mean like they they've been so depleted by injuries and they've been so reliant on Wilson to continue to make things happen but it felt like if they had one or two more things then they would have been the team that would take the Packers down but I think that is exactly why we've had some of the skepticism at this 13 and 3 record because of the games exactly the ones that you mentioned Gary yeah to be perfectly honest I, I I'm skeptical of both of these teams I think the Packers match up really well with the Vikings and and rightfully swept them but I don't know you know, if you're doing a sort of a round robin tournament, I don't know if the Vikings are 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 worse than the Packers if if they're going against all opponents. But uh, um, yeah, Packers will go on to Santa Clara, play the 49ers next week. The Seahawks go home. Uh, the Seahawks to me are they, they were just they were really uh, I I will be nice and say interesting team all year. Uh, 
I don't think they're built to get takeaways. I know this defense is the scheme is supposed to be forcing takeaways. They just they don't have a pass rush. You don't have those, you know, there's no Richard Sherman or Earl Thomas on the back end anymore. None of those guys are really ball hawks on the back end, yet they they ended up forcing 32 turnovers this year. Uh I don't think that's sustainable. I think that was one of the flukiest stats in the league this year. And you have a team that went 10 and 2 in a, in one possession games. I don't know. Uh they still have Russell Wilson. They still have Bobby Wagner. It's still Pete Carroll. Maybe DK Metcalf uh, is sort of sort of makes the jump to superstar next year. But I just I I feel like this team was probably fortunate to get double digit wins this year, and I think they slide back next year, especially if the Rams are going to sort of get right in that division, and the 49ers are still going to keep being really good. Well, that first half really did reinforce that this defense is a far cry from the Legion of Boom days. It just looks so different and it's just missing that intimidation factor. So you see, you know, a Packers offense that has been inconsistent this year, just come out and build a big lead and, you know, everything was working for it and the Seahawks didn't have a lot of answers and it just, yeah, it, it, it didn't feel like the same, uh, you know, the same presence and, um, you know, force that those other Seahawks teams had had. I think that was a, a big difference. And, yeah, I don't know exactly where they'll be able to get that from. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I guess, the big decision with their roster. Jadavian Clowney is a, is a free agent. Do they end up retaining him or do they, do they uh, you know, they, they, they brought in Ziggy Ansa to try and get that pass rush going a little bit as well. And it just didn't really happen this year. And, and it's, it's something they need with this defense. I don't know. I worry about the Seahawks. They'll, yeah. they'll probably just go out and they'll probably just go out and, and win 11 games next year anyway. I mean, that's actually what I would say. But yeah, I mean, you know, Clowney, he had some not so great penalties in the game but then also there were other times when you were like well yes he's their only hope of getting any kind of pressure and he's playing through this groin injury that he clearly was in a lot of pain from and so it was kind of a, a sorry state but the best the best pressure they got all night was the Shaquem Griffin sack with his brother coming yeah. in at the same time that was uh that was a pretty cool moment that was it really was uh, let's, uh, let's go back to the early game on Sunday here. That was, uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I have never seen a game like that, at least not at the NFL level. Uh, Texans get out to a 21, nothing lead chiefs go and score four touchdowns in the second quarter. And eventually this just ends up being sort of a laugher for Kansas city 51 31. Uh, I mean, look, I, I, I had said all week. Chiefs can kind of name their number against this Texans defense. The Texans, are just, they've had issues on the back end all season. Uh, they do have J.J. Watt back, but it's still not, you know, it's not a pass rush that's sort of good enough to overwhelm teams. And on top of that, the Chiefs, when they have when they have their offensive line healthy and they have Tyreek Hill and Patrick Mahomes in the lineup, uh, they're 8-0 now. They're beating teams by an average of 17 points a game. Uh, it's just a really, really good offense against a, a defense that just really has issues. But, I mean, it's 24-0 in the second quarter, and that's, that's, that's tough to blow that lead no matter who you're facing. Yeah, if you had to pick a combination of an offense versus a defense to close a 24-0 lead, I feel like this was a pretty good one, right? Because the yeah. Chiefs can score so quickly. But even so, 
even given the explosiveness of their offense and their ability to close the gap, they still were reliant on bad decisions by the Texans, you know, going for the fourth down. Um, when they hadn't gone for the fourth and short, they kicked the field yeah. goal there. Then instead of punting, they they go for it and don't get it. And then also the really fluky return where the ball just kind of pops out and then you know that that was really weird Gary like the ball just kind of like it was like it it was just a stunning turn of events like it was just I guess it was the evening things out of the luck that had gone the Texans way in the first 15 (laughs) minutes it was just like swinging back the Chiefs way it was it was bizarrely like symmetrical it was like two major special teams gaffes leading to directly to touchdowns for the other team each of them like Chiefs had two of those in the first quarter Texans returned two of those in the second quarter and I, I don't know I, I guess it did like the special teams mishaps evened out in this one well I have to give credit to Connor Orr because we're like ooh, rough first quarter for Dave Tobe and he was like he, you know, he basically was like, wait <laughs> till wait, guy. wait till he's in the Super Bowl. And then things started to turn on <laughs> on, you know, the backs of Dave Tobe's special teams unit. So then it was like, all right, I guess we should, you know, give some credit back to Dave Tobe and the Chiefs special teams because they were really the spark that that led to the turnaround. I'll say this. I'll back up because you mentioned the two plays here, and obviously that's what people are really getting on Bill O'Brien for, you know, in the aftermath here. There was the fourth and inches when the Texans were leading 21 nothing. They had a fourth and inches at at the Chiefs' 13-yard line, and he opted to kick the he opted to kick the field goal. And and look, no one's anticipating that uh, that they're going to give up 14 points in the next like you know 45 seconds or whatever that was after that play, but uh, it's it's like you just have to collect as many points as possible when you're playing the Chiefs, especially with the defense the Texans have, and just seeing them settle for three there was really disappointing. It was interesting to hear Bill O'Brien say after the game that he had been saying all week that they needed to score 50 points to beat the Chiefs. So in that context, the decision was more surprising because, well, if you think you need to score 50, then you should be going for seven instead of three in that situation. I didn't hate it when they did it. They didn't get the plane quickly enough to kind of run it fast, right? They had to take a timeout there, I believe. And so mm-hmm. at that point, yep. I, I sometimes understand, well, okay, now they have a second to reset, prepare for the fourth down play. But you, they had been moving the ball so easily, and it felt like, what was it, half a foot or something like that? You know, it was yeah. a very short distance that they would be able to – it wouldn't be a big – challenge with the defense on its heels to get that distance but I didn't hate the field goal it's just that everything that happened after that point it really put that decision into perspective I know I actually I I know I'm in the minority uh I did not hate the fake punt um Connor Orr who as Jenny mentioned he's our our Dave Tobe uh beat writer he was down in Kansas City for the game and he, he asked some Texans after the game about that and it's it's a sight adjustment if they see it if they get the look they want 
they take it. It was a fourth and four. And uh, quite frankly, I, they did have the look. Daniel Sorensen just made a, a great open field tackle on that. He had to diagnose it immediately and make a difficult tackle. And he did, he did both those things. And that's why it ended up being foiled. Um, so I'm trying to, it's like I'm trying to separate those two decisions because obviously one was way too conservative and one ended up uh, being on the aggressive side. But I don't know. I, I really didn't have an issue with them trying that fake punt and trying to keep the ball away from Patrick Mahomes as much as possible. Because as we saw, uh, I mean, at one point, the, the Chiefs had seven consecutive touchdown drives against them. Yeah, and I heard they said on the broadcast that they didn't want to punt every time, right? They wanted to they they wanted to run fakes. And I do agree that if you see an opportunity you know, you sort of, that's what you go into the game. It's not necessarily reliant on what happened previously. It's an independent decision. And you tell your players, if we're in this situation, we see this look, you go for it. And they stuck to the game plan going in. So I can understand that approach. Um, But I don't know. I do think you have to take into account, not necessarily going for the field goal instead of the touchdown on the previous fourth down. But I think you do have to take into account not giving them a momentum, another momentum swing, right? If you feel like the tide is maybe starting to turn a little bit, you know that you're going to essentially give them an opening to kind of suck some of that momentum back. I don't know. That would be my concern there. It was uh, whatever it was. I mean, it, it was out of hand after that. Um, and look, they 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 got they got two stops, or I should say, they got three stops to uh, uh to start this game. The uh, the Texans defense did. Um, two of them though came on just wide open receivers just dropping the ball on third down, which was. Just one of those things. Travis Kelsey had a drop on on the on the first series, and it was Demarcus Robinson in the second. Uh, and then they got like a legitimate stop on the third one. And when when Justin Reed sort of laid this big hit on Tyreek Hill, and 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 Hill stayed down, it was kind of like I don't know, maybe this will work out after all. And then it just again, I mean, seven consecutive touchdown drives is is pretty insane for an NFL playoff game. Uh, and then they added a field goal, a short chip shot field goal after that to, to get to 51 points. And uh, at that point, the game was out of hand. Yeah, it was just one of those wild swings that it would be very hard to fathom going into the game. I I felt like I was ready to look for hotels in Houston for the AFC Championship game, Gary. <laughs> I thought when they went up 24-0, I was like, all right, like this is – they. This is for real. Like they, they could do this, and uh, I don't. I it just there was no way for them to reclaim once things went sideways. There was no way for them to reclaim that. And the Chiefs reminded us of, you know, there was so much talk this year of the Ravens and Lamar Jackson being MVP, rightly so, and because of Mahomes had an injury and the Chiefs had some bumps in their season. We kind of forgot about. The magic of last year and that last year the Chiefs were the offense that we were all talking about so much and I think this was yeah. sort of their way of reminding everybody like we've got an MVP too and our offense is still something to be reckoned with. Yeah, I, I think the other reason, I mean, obviously a 24 nothing lead makes anyone feel pretty good. But uh, when the Texans won in Kansas City in October, uh, they rolled up like 192 yards of, of uh, uh, on the ground. I mean, it was a game where 
they got a lead and they they really just grinded down the clock and it just didn't really happen in this one they they never really got it going with the ground game and uh it was i mean it was it was just so wild that like a game that they led 24 nothing in the second quarter it was like midway through the third quarter and it was like oh well this one got away from them they they can't win this now yeah and for the texans it's just kind of this it plays into this storyline of early playoff exits and they just can't seem to get over the hump and it was they kind of they went into Kansas City with nothing to lose and it looked like they were going to pull it off and then they they left with the same stunning result it's those those kind of situations it's hard to get over and then at some point in time it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy I think that you're always a team that exits early which I'm sure is something that we'll talk about the Ravens a little bit later and I do think that's a different situation but for the Texans this is a big part of of their storyline and yeah you know the other thing was too like just okay everyone thinks Watts back and you could tell like he's still on his way back from the injury and he wasn't you know fully in game shape and I think they were just too some pieces missing and some parts missing on defense to really be able to keep up with the Chiefs offense well we'll uh let's talk about it a little bit with the uh with the Texans look ahead obviously the Chiefs next week will host the Titans in the AFC title game but uh um they have the quarterback in place. I know every Texans fan pretty much wants Bill O'Brien out at this point. It's it's not going to happen for for a number of reasons. Um, but among that, I mean, Deshaun Watson has said he wants Bill O'Brien as his coach. He you know he will play for O'Brien. He loves O'Brien, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I don't think he has a problem with the locker room. I, I I know again the early playoff exit, and obviously there were a couple of things that even the casual fan can look at in this game and say, what in the world are you doing? Um, the issue they have is is this defense. This defense has just, uh, you know, Clowney was gone, obviously, and then they lost Watt for a chunk of the season. And uh, and the back end of this defense, it, it's it's funny. Andy and I used to always talk on the show like Jonathan Joseph is going to start for the Texans for like the next twenty years because every time they bring in young defensive backs. They never pan out, and they end up with Jonathan Joseph out on the field again. And uh, you saw, you know, it, they signed Aaron Colvin two year, two off seasons ago to a big free agent contract. He didn't work out; he's gone. Uh, Bradley Roby, you know, I, I don't think Roby disappointed as much as Colvin did, but um, I, I don't know if he was quite the difference maker uh, that they thought he might be. But they also, I mean, look, they, they went out; they, they got Gary Ann Comley, and they got uh, Vernon Hargraves, who was let go by Tampa Bay. Those, those are former first round picks. Those are talented guys. But it is just not right on the back end of that defense, and it hasn't been for a long time. And when you have Watt Clowney merciless in the pass rush to make up for it, that made a big difference. But it's just it it's not working out. And I don't know if like one off season to sort of like build up the chemistry or whatever. I don't know if that's enough of a difference maker. Yeah, and that kind of goes back to why we were saying earlier if you had a pair an offense and a defense that would be able to come back from this 24-0 deficit the Chiefs offense against the Texans secondary was just go- always going to be a mismatch should mention Jonathan Joseph did not play in this game by the way he was a uh... Um, I, I know he had the hamstring injury. I, I, I think he wasn't technically inactive, but I don't think he got out on the field at all in this one. So 
maybe that's what they needed. More 47-year-old Jonathan Joseph on the field, and that's that's what would have worked out in the end. But uh, let's uh, let's go back to Saturday night and the game you were at, and obviously the shocker of the weekend. Uh, the Titans go in and just sort of steamroll the Ravens. Uh, and, and look, everyone everyone got to make big broad reactions off of this that, you know, whether it was, uh, you know, Ryan Tannehill is the all-time find or Lamar Jackson has been exposed as some sort of flawed quarterback at this point. Um, I think one thing everyone can agree on is, you know, anyone skeptical about building this Titans offense around Derrick Henry, uh, he's a unique back. It's a unique offense. And uh, there's just something you said that there's there's a chemistry between Henry and and the offensive line, and I think one thing Henry doesn't get credit for uh, because of his build, and and when he is in the open field, when he gets to the second and third level, he is a nightmare. Like he is a big play guy at that point. I mean, and and, and you saw, it, you know, there's a 66 yard run in this game. He's breaking off huge runs because once he gets that build up speed going, he he is even though he's like 250 pounds, he is fast. Yes. But he does blend in with the offensive linemen. I will say that. Yes. I was like watching on the field during the game with my binoculars. And like if you didn't know what position everyone was playing, like if you couldn't see their number and you didn't know who was who, he blends in with the linemen. Like it's just like he's another part of the offensive line. It's it's pretty remarkable. But yes, I mean, he has been just his performances against the Patriots and then against the Ravens. Two very good defenses, um, and they just have no plan for him. You know, you saw, like, veteran defenders like Earl Thomas were just stunned by someone like Derrick Henry, right? Like, that really stood out to me was, like, obviously there's a size mismatch there between the safety and Derrick Henry, but, like, Earl Thomas seemed stunned by how hard it was to bring this guy down. It was, I mean, yeah, he got, he got turned around on that play and I, I really don't blame him. Uh, I don't know what else you can do as defensive back when, when Derrick Henry comes at you with a head of steam. There, there was one play, it was, it was the 66 yard run that I, that I mentioned before. It was kind of funny. I, I know you were at the game. I was watching uh, uh, the broadcast at home and, you know, af- after the, after the play happened, Dan Fouts was, was, you know, they throw it back to him. He's like, you know, uh, John Smith lands his block here and that's where, and they showed him replay John Smith did not land the block uh Matt Judon who's you know I mean he's going to be a huge free agent signing for someone he is a, a star edge player for the Ravens uh he just bounced off Derrick Henry he had like a clean shot at him and just did not phase Derrick Henry and then Derrick Henry just ran 66 yards and Marcus Peters had to chase him down from behind and uh it was <laughs> again like it doesn't really matter how you know, we we think of big plays coming from the passing game, but when you get big plays from the running game, uh, it just it, it, it's it, it changes things. Uh, it, there's like no risk for your offense. You're just you're just able to go out there and and control the ball, control the clock, and control the game. Uh, and this is how the Titans want to play. Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit reminiscent of when I covered the Giants and Brandon Jacobs was there, and there were always these tone setting plays during their Super Bowl runs, right? He 
ran over Charles Woodson in that Green Bay Packers game. And it's just this time of year, everyone's bodies are beat up anyway. And so when you have this big bruising running back coming at you and you know that he's going to be the centerpiece of the offense and you still can't stop him. I mean, that's what's remarkable, you know, in the locker room post game, you could hear some of the players talking in the shower. So I, you know, behind a, a door, but you can hear the voices coming out. At one point, someone says, Ryan Tannehill had 88 yards passing. I think it was 88 yards. And it was like they <laughs> were was. like trying to wrap their head around the fact that like they lost to a team where the opposing quarterback had 88 yards passing. Meanwhile, they, the, their quarterback, Lamar had now, I mean, he, he pa- they had him passing the ball way too much, which I'm sure we will get to. I mean, anyone passing the ball 59 times in a game is is a recipe for a disaster. But, you know, Lamar passes for 300-some yards, rushes for 100 yards. So it's like – and then the winning quarterback passes for 88 yards. It's just like it's a very stunning box score. And so I think there was just like this – it was a stunning game for a lot of reasons for the Ravens. But I think – there's something to the fact when you know that the offense is going to run through this player and you just really you can't do anything about it. Yeah, I mean, Tannehill has had Tannehill's passing yardage totals have been less than half of Henry's rushing yardage totals in these two playoff games here for the Titans. And uh, uh, if you were to uh, extrapolate uh, Derrick Henry's rushing total so far over two playoff games, over 16 games, he would be a 3,000-yard rusher over a 16-game season. Um, I mean, he is the centerpiece of the offense, and it is completely working. And yeah, Tannehill had 88 yards, and, and 45 of them were on that play-action uh, shot play touchdown that came after the the first fourth and inches stop by, by the Titans. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, like within the flow of the game, they basically didn't throw the ball. They didn't get anything out of the passing game. Yeah, and one of the touchdown passes was was Derrick Henry. <laughs> that mm-hmm. was a cool play design. Tannehill was on the sideline for that play. Marcus Mariota comes on. He motions out, and so Derrick Henry takes a direct snap, and he does a little jump pass to the back of the end zone, which was a pretty cool play designed by Arthur Smith. And I have to give a shout-out to Andy Benoit, too. When we were doing our all-pro balloting, we were – going back and forth about who the assistant coach pick should be. And, you know, a lot of the choices were Ravens, you know, Wink Martindale or Greg Roman. And Andy really was advocating for Arthur Smith and said he's done a great job designing this Titans offense all season long. And so Andy is often ahead of these things, right? So then it's interesting, of course, on Saturday night, Twitter's exploding. Arthur Smith, what a great game. And I'm like, well, if you knew Andy Benoit, you were already on the Arthur (laughs) Smith bandwagon weeks earlier. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny. Like it, it, when it was Mariota, it was kind of like uh, Arthur Smith. He sort of got like a lifetime achievement type of promotion to offensive coordinator, and obviously this isn't working. So they'll have to go back to the drawing board and and et cetera. And and look, Tannehill, uh, what everything of Ryan Tannehill and and what happened in Miami, Tannehill just is sort of a better fit for this offense. He's more comfortable running this type of offense than I mean, Mariota was was a you know he was he was a spread guy at Oregon. Um, that's not what they do here. I'd, I don't think he was ever really comfortable with it. And Tannehill is comfortable in this offense. And, and Arthur Smith has, you know, as, as Andy says, and, and as we will now say, and the world will now say, like, he's, he, he's got a beautiful offense here at this point. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I think the point you just made about Tannehill being a good fit for this offense is why there were rumors since the summer that 
Tannehill would take over. And I think it was kind of stunning at first, like Tannehill's going to beat out Marcus Mariota, but it was just that he was a better fit for what they wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, uh, I mean, uh, the Ravens obviously had this dream season and this was a stunning end to it. And uh, like you said, Lamar Jackson accounted for more than 500 yards of offense in this game. Uh, From a broad sense, he wasn't good in this game. Uh, Obviously, you know, he did roll up some of these numbers when, when it was sort of out of hand already. Uh, This was, (laughs) I mean, I, I don't think he'd hesitate to say that this was one of his his worst performances of the season. Um, his one weakness, and this is something the Titans forced him to do in this game, was was throwing outside the numbers, and uh, it just it was that combined with a couple of bad bounces, and that really just it, it sunk the Ravens. I, I I can't really decide how poorly I think Lamar played in this game because I I don't think it was a disastrous performance, um, even though it was disappointing. But uh, I I don't necessarily look at this game and say like, well, here's a blueprint type of thing. Like I don't even know if this is a blueprint to the extent that like there was a blueprint on the Rams by the end of last season. I I think this was just a combination of a good game plan and an off night for Lamar. And that was enough to, to sink this. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I really think you hit the nail on the head, Gary, is that they, they got the Ravens out of what they had been doing well all season, which was the offense was built around two things that we're going to just, go all in on running, we're going to run a lot more than you think we'll run, and we'll run with our quarterback, and we value the fact that our quarterback runs. We also value the pass that our, or, uh, the fact that our quarterback passes, but we're going to build our offense around a lot of those throws in the middle of the field, two tight ends. They love the fact that they have three tight ends. When they introduce the starters at the Ravens Stadium, they introduce all three tight ends, Gary. So, like, the tight ends <laughs> are a big part of the offense because, yes, it's those throws that are in the middle of the field, right? So that is how the Ravens offense was built this year, and they they took away those things. The Titans did a good job of that. I would say also that the Ravens kind of took away the run from themselves. And I think that was probably the biggest failing in that they went down 14-0 a quarter into the game and they they already got away from the run, which is way too early. It's not that big of a deficit. There's plenty of time left and that is a strength of yours. So I think that is one of the biggest questions, e- even more so than the fourth and shorts, because I didn't I didn't really have a huge issue with the fourth and shorts. They had been excellent on fourth and one. They were perfect on fourth yeah. and one all season <laughs> yep. long, eight for eight. So it's hard to say, oh, don't go for the fourth and shorts when you've been doing it so well. Now, the Ravens offensive lineman said the Titans did a really good job of like submarining at their legs so that the lineman could get zero push. And I did wonder sometimes why they didn't have Lamar Try, try Lamar going outside and using his speed on the edge. But uh, that aside, I think I could understand why they went for both of the fourth and ones. But I cannot understand why they got away from the run game too early, and it, it felt like they panicked. You know, Lamar said, we got out of our element, and Marshall Yonda said, I don't want to get into it too much, but we didn't run effectively for long enough, which was a veteran's way of saying, why did we abandon the run game? Yeah. 
Yeah, and and look, uh, they had the ball. They, they had like three drives that stalled deep in Titans territory in, in the fourth quarter. Now, obviously, um, you know, if they score a touchdown, perhaps the Titans take a different approach when they get the ball back. Uh, you know, things are different if you're if you're uh, defending a one or two possession game instead of like a three or four possession game. But um, the Ravens did. It's like they did looking back have time to sort of stick with what they do. Now, also Mark Ingram obviously had the calf issue, so did that sort of make them hesitant to to ride the running game as, as much as they did? I mean, Gus Edwards, uh, I mean, Ingram Edwards ended up combining for nine carries in this game. They, they weren't heavily featured. Uh, it, it just... Um, yeah, it, it felt like... It, it felt a little bit like a team that fell behind big hadn't fallen behind big all season and kind of weren't really sure. It's it's like they didn't know how to calibrate how uh how sort of aggressive and 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 uh sort sort of how quickly, how much time they need to to close that gap. That that's a good way to put it. Because I wouldn't really I don't think 14-0 is all that big. I mean, especially not in the context of 24-0 like the Chiefs Titans game, right? So, I I think they didn't exactly know how to respond. I think that's probably a a good way of looking at it, but also it just felt like there was just this this sense of panic and um and I don't know exactly where that panic came from and again, maybe it's something like, well, we just didn't have an experience going through this situation in the regular season. Um, but I just felt it was, it was very bizarre. Uh, you know, you, you, it was just so early in the game. Like that's what I had a hard time. It was just so early in the game and they had been moving the ball. Well, was the other thing, you know, it wasn't like they were struggling entirely, you know, the first drive and you know, they, they had turnovers obviously. And then they, they had, they went for it on fourth and shorts and they had turnovers on downs. And so there were there were reasons that drives ended without points, but they were moving the ball well. Yeah, it uh it also that drive they had at the end of the first half was it when, when it felt like they might right the ship and and that was through the air. And I wonder if that gave them a little more confidence uh against some of these lone, zone looks that the Titans were giving them. Uh I mean they, they basically moved the ball ninety five yards and uh, didn't quite get the touchdown, but uh they converted a third and sixteen. They they had a, a big play downfield to to Marquise Brown, but yeah, I, 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 I mean, look, I, I guess ultimately it's it's something of a, uh, a, a of a lesson here that they learned about, uh, you know, that that they do have time to get back in the game, especially with that defense too. But um, yeah, boy, what a what a just a shocking way to go out for a team that was rightfully everyone was incredibly excited to to see what they do in January. Yeah, and I think I wrote after the game, which of course gets misconstrued in the world of Twitter, Gary, but I wrote after the game that this doesn't negate the fact that Lamar had this incredible MVP season and that they reimagined the offense in a way that we probably aren't used to in this current era of the NFL. And I think all of those things are valid. One bad performance in a playoff game where they fall into a hole and they panic and they can't find their way out of it and they kind of get out of what they do like I feel like it would be a big mistake to say well teams are getting used to this offense and there's no way that it can work and Lamar this is it for Lamar I I feel like it's exactly the opposite you know he 
he was frustrated at times during the game. There, that was obvious. But also, he was continuing to fight. And there were several times in the game where, you know, there was that one 27-yard run where I think he juked like four defenders and you thought, hey, maybe this is the spark. So it wasn't like you didn't see any of those flashes. And it wasn't like you were seeing Titans defense after the game saying, hey, it was so easy to stop him. Like... It's it's a major challenge for opponents, and that hasn't changed at all. And the the idea that this offense has been found out and won't be Lamar won't be successful moving <laughs> no. forward, I, I feel like that is like such a tired conclusion to come to at this point. They'll they'll go get Joe Flacco back, and and Lamar can <laughs> uh, I don't know it'll be a gadget guy next year or something. Uh, it it is ridiculous because I mean look. This performance was better than the two Super Bowl quarterback performances last year. I mean, I, I, uh, you know, I, I've mentioned on the show. I, I grew up a huge Steelers fan. Uh, I can tell you, Ben Roethlisberger was terrible early in his career in the postseason, and I know they won a Super Bowl in there too. But um, he was an atrocious postseason quarterback. I mean, uh, Peyton Manning took five years to win a playoff game. I, it, it, this guy's twenty-one. This is he, he's had a year and a half as a starter, like to to assume that he has plateaued and he will plateau at some point and he has I will say the most negative thing I'll I'll say about it is he has improved so immensely over the last couple of seasons go even going back to uh you know his first starts at Louisville um it has been just an incredible rise that he's had uh and at some point that will slow down he will not you know if he continues to rise to that level he'll I don't know, they'll score like 80 points a game and and he'll be the most unstoppable player of all time. That won't happen. He'll plateau at some point. But, you know, like, so his issue right now is, is throwing outside the numbers. That's something he can work on. That's something that might improve this upcoming offseason. And then you have, you are able to expand this offense. There's just so many things you can do with a guy who is rising so fast as a passer. Um, his ability with his legs are not going away. Uh they're just you can expand this offense and do so many so so many incredible things here and to look at this game they'll get one bad game here in January against a really good defense you're right I mean it's 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 just a complete ridiculous uh way to view it yeah yeah and I think one of the biggest lessons that Lamar taught the NFL this year is you don't have to be a finished product when you come out of college, which seems obvious, but there's always this perception of like, well, we can't draft this guy because he has a lot of work to do, or or maybe that's a reason to talk yourself out of drafting somebody. And he clearly has a support system in place where they're like, hey, there are a lot of things he does really well. There are other things he can do better. So to think that, okay, if there's something that in his game needs more work, we'll look at all of the work he did between season one and season two. It's silly to think he couldn't get better at a skill between season two and season three. Certainly the Ravens don't think that. So I, I think all of the optimism that I sensed in the Owings Mills facility last week, which I was collecting, you know, thinking that they would have a long <laughs> playoff run, collecting all the yeah. speed about this young core that they hope they're building. But that is still valid. Like, that is still true. Like, there is still that optimism. There are still these pieces in place that can grow together. And so it was a disappointing end for sure. But I, I don't I don't think that it's like this. It's not like this. this what we thought was a new era has all of a sudden ended after yeah. one year 
Yeah, on top of I mean, coming into the season, you you looked at the offense and said, like, well, how much can they get better in the passing game when, you know, you, you have not very good receivers, like the guys you're relying on are so young. So you're going to have Marquise Brown, you're going to have Miles Boykin in year two. They're going to make leaps. Uh, we saw a big leap from Mark Andrews this year, who I, I, I think uh, – um, I know Andy was high on him coming into the year, and I think everyone else sort of was like, eh, he might be kind of okay, but he ended up being, I mean, he's he's a borderline all-pro type of guy at tight end. I know he had a rough night on Saturday. I, I think he was not quite right physically, but um, they're going to have weapons there. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's a bitter pill to swallow when you get it handed to you uh, after a 14-2 season in your, in your first postseason game, but... Um, it, it's so difficult to look at this and 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 be pessimistic about what the Ravens have coming up, uh, considering what they have. Absolutely. But, but let's uh, let's go back to the first game of the weekend. Uh, look, the the 49ers defensively, we we know what they can do. They they had a couple of rough games down the stretch relatively I mean they, they were not quite as dominant as they had been in, in the first part of the year and it was kind of like okay are, are, are they going to get back on track here and they very much did so I mean their their pass rush completely overwhelmed the Vikings their secondary is just I mean Richard Sherman is playing uh, as well as he has at any point in his career they basically gave up one big play in this one to the Vikings and it was a uh, it was a beautiful play a beautiful throw by Kirk Cousins great adjustment by uh, Stefan Diggs they got a Kella Witherspoon on a long touchdown but uh, other than that the 49ers just overwhelmed uh, the Vikings offense in this one and it just uh once they got that two possession lead, it just felt like it wasn't going away. It's pretty amazing that when Shanahan and Lynch were hired, they got these twin five-year deals and it was, hey, we're going to be patient and we're going to give them time to build. And, you know, things were pretty on track. I mean, other than Jimmy Garoppolo's ACL injury, which kind of messed maybe with the timeline a little bit, like – they, they kind of like, if you had to set a timeline for, hey, we're going to get better in X number of years, like it really worked out as you would draw it up. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I know a lot of people are looking at this and saying like, oh, yeah, they were so bad and they got all these great drafts. I mean, yes, Nick Bosa is obviously a, a game changer. And if, if Garoppolo had not gotten hurt last year, they're probably not picking that high in the draft. And it's her. But they went out and they got D Ford and uh, D Ford's back in the lineup. He uh, he, he, he looked good. Um, they already had the, the two uh, the two bigger guys, uh, DeForest Buckner and Eric Armstead in the middle of that line. They, they went and got Quan Alexander. He's back. They signed Richard Sherman. They signed Richard Sherman at a time when, I mean, look, the, the Seahawks, basically told you what they thought of Richard Sherman coming off the Achilles injury. And and this isn't to pick on the Seahawks. I think a lot of people thought the same way that Richard Sherman would just never be the same again. And, uh, they were Richard Sherman is, is playing at an all pro level again. So, uh, this was not a matter of like, Oh yeah, they just got a bunch of early draft picks. Uh, they, they went out and traded for their quarterback. Uh, I mean, this has been built, pretty much as well as you can build and on top of that like that first draft I mean they they took Solomon Thomas and Reuben Foster and and Thomas is still on the roster and not making a big impact Reuben Foster is obviously uh no longer there uh this has been a team that has built aggressively sort of outside the draft and they've built some some you know obviously yes they got Bosa but they've sort of built depth through the draft and uh 
it's just really well coached on both sides of the ball. I, I mean, I think it's it's one of those teams that just have a schematic advantage on offense and defense. Yeah, that's exactly right. You you and that's why you know I think there was certainly Richard Sherman has been stumping for solace, wondering why he didn't get a job this year. And as you yeah. mentioned, I, I think some of I don't know. There's always some kind of recency bias, right? Maybe some of the later games in the year weren't showcases for the defense, but certainly you could say the same about some of the Vikings' offensive performances late in the season. And Kevin Stefanski did get a job. So, but um, but yeah, you all you feel like they're they have built their roster well, but they're also getting the most out of all of the players that they have and. Maybe it took Jimmy Garoppolo a while to learn Kyle Shanahan's system and to get used to all of the intricacies of it, of a system that he wasn't familiar with. Um, But I think the support of Shanahan and putting Garoppolo in positions to be successful, yeah, just you kind of, you, you feel like, they're one of a handful of teams in the league where the coaching staff just gives them a real advantage. That's very obvious to see even to like a casual observer. Yeah. It's uh look, the, the opening drive of this game with the 49ers, which is absolutely masterful. And, uh, uh, Garoppolo was a little bit off. I mean, he, his ball placement wasn't great, but everyone was schemed so wide open that it was just it, it was just easy. And and this is against a really good Vikings defense. And obviously, it, you know, game was a bit of a slog after that. And and uh, but it just didn't feel like the Vikings were um, really getting back into it once the 49ers sort of opened a lead in the second half here. Uh, and and look, the 49ers now host a Packers team that they blew away on a Sunday night uh, in their in their building and uh the one thing i mean we'll have all week to talk about it on these shows but um i thought the best single game coaching job this season was sean mcveigh in the second matchup with the 49ers when he knew his offensive line could not block the 49ers at all and that's that's what happened to them when they when they played the 49ers at home early in the season and he just they ran out all this tempo and all this misdirection stuff and they they uh they, they basically neutralized that pass rush and they 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 outplayed the 49ers in that game. They probably should have won that game. It came down to one really weird pick six that Jared Goff threw at the end of the the first half where he sort of lost track of a of a linebacker in the flat and then uh a really weird blown coverage by a rookie safety at the end of it. But um if Matt LaFleur, I mean Matt LaFleur should just go crash at Sean McVay's house for a couple of days and just sort of figure out what McVay did to the 49ers that worked so well because uh I mean the Packers got absolutely nothing done offensively when when they went in there uh, earlier this season. Yeah, and I mean it's what a wealth of information. Like I would love to hear that phone call, right? Like how much I mean <laughs> do you think maybe he I mean we we've talked a lot on these shows the last couple of weeks about head coach candidates bunking with owners. So now the image of Sean McVay bunking in Green Bay to to help his former offensive coordinator scheme up for this game is an intriguing one. Mm-hmm. Lots of connect. I mean LaFleur knows uh knows Kyle Shanahan well too. Lots of Lots of connections here with the with the coaching situations, but uh, uh, let's talk about the Vikings offseason look ahead real quick, and then we'll get to Stefanski and, and what's going on in Cleveland. But uh, 
my my issue with the Vikings kind of, and this will be this upcoming season, twenty twenty, will be the last year of Kirk Cousins' big, uh, you know, three year, eighty four million dollar contract. Uh, I look, I know the results haven't been there, but like the kind of performance they got from him when they won in New Orleans, that's what they had in mind when they signed him. I don't think they signed Kirk Cousins. I know everyone likes to look at the list of of like quarterback salaries and say like, well, he's the third highest paid guy, so he should be, uh, you know, whatever, the, the third best quarter. He should be like Patrick Mahomes based on what he's making. Like, it, it doesn't work like that. They brought in a veteran quarterback and you have to pay veteran quarterbacks, not like the rookie wage scale that, that artificially suppresses those guys' salaries. And uh, they brought him in because they, they thought he could reliably manage this offense, which he has done. Uh, Just the offense hasn't quite been good enough against some of these, these top line defenses. And, and frankly, I mean, look, 49ers aren't going away and in their division, the Packers aren't going away. Yeah. So it's going to set up an interesting decision point. Is that what you're getting at Gary? It's, it's that, but it's like, I guess it's more the offensive line worries me. And I don't really know how they, they address the offensive line. If you're not going to address the offensive line, do you, do you address the quarterback? And, and But you can't address the quarterback at this point. Uh, I guess I'm saying that they, it feels like they're kind of stuck right now. And I don't know how they get unstuck. Yeah, and I think that's probably why there were some of the rumors about Mike Zimmer's job status because he's certainly done an excellent job with the team while he's been there. But yeah, they've kind of been stuck at this level and they 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 can't seem to to clear the hump and anytime that's the case for too long in one place, you start to say like what shakeups could change that possibly. And you know, when they signed Cousins it it made sense for the team and but you know it, it doesn't make sense to recommit to him if he hasn't necessarily helped or been a part of like clearing that hump i don't know i mean and i i certainly think he's played fine i agree with you but yeah what 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 area of the roster do you address i guess to make yeah. that to i don't know to to make that change and so that they're they're up against it cap wise, uh, and and it's really uh, the other the other area you'd sort of look at on this roster and say you know a little worry about it. They they do have a great pass rush, but uh, I mean Xavier Rhodes sort of slid back this year, and and now you kind of wonder what happens to that secondary because uh, look they they had issues uh, covering guys in some games this year. So it's like the two reactionary positions, which which I feel like are the most difficult to to fill on any roster, which is offense of line and 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 defensive backfield uh because they're they're so reliant on chemistry and it's just i mean if you're going to get a guy in free agency you got to pay a premium they can't really do that uh it is a good offensive line draft maybe maybe someone's sitting there in the uh in the 20s that they like but uh i don't know i i just think it's really difficult for them to get over the hump considering the way the other top teams in this conference are uh, are constructed right now Right, and now there will be an offensive coordinator change too. Yeah. Yep. Well, let's uh, let's go to that Cleveland Browns, the last vacancy in uh, in this head coaching cycle. And look, there's there's nothing wrong with hiring last. Kyle Shanahan was hired last. Frank Reich, Bruce Arians, lots of really good coaches were the were the last hiring of a of a cycle here. And the Browns end up tabbing Kevin Stefanski. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, look, I, I was, I remain shocked that Robert Sala didn't get hired anywhere. Uh, I, I, I really thought Eric Bieniemy or, or one of the Ravens guys would get plucked. It's just like you look around the league, and it's it's more complicated than just looking at the top teams and saying like hire their assistants. But at the same time, it's like I, I can't believe that the 49ers, the Ravens, and the Chiefs all kept their coaching staffs pretty much fully intact this year. Yeah, it's weird because. We're- it seems like every year at the Super Bowl, there's somebody that we know what their job is, but we can't say it officially. Obviously, last year, yeah. that was the case with Brian Flores, you know, Dan Quinn, uh, Kyle Shanahan. So it was Flores and Zach Taylor last year. Right. Flores and Zach Taylor. Correct. Correct. Um, so yeah, it feels weird to be going into a Super Bowl without being like, okay, like, well, we know this guy is going to be whisked off by his new plane. Like last year, right? You know, the Patriots had their post-game party and Steve Ross is waiting in the lobby of the hotel after the all-night party to take Brian Flores to South Florida. So it's strange to not have that kind of situation. The Savansky hire, so a lot has come out about Paul DePodesta's role and think it could have gone one of two ways, right? There's been a lot of speculation over the last couple of years and, and specifically with the John Dorsey, John Dorsey, Paul D. Podesta uh, marriage previously was, well, how will this work? Does this mean that analytics is going to become less important? And they've really swung the other direction. So they fired yeah. John Dorsey and they essentially have given D. Podesta even more power. And so I, I, I felt that they were going to have to make that decision to, to be able to keep him there, right? Like that probably was at a point where you either get all of the power and all of the decision making that you haven't had, or maybe it doesn't work out. So they've really leaned that direction. And there are reports coming out of Cleveland that it may be so far as the new coach will need to share his game plans with the analytics staff and by the Friday of game week and go over those the, the, the details of the game plan from an analytics perspective, which I think a lot of head coaches, a lot of head coach candidates might not have agreed to. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there were rumors that 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 was a sticking point with Josh McDaniels, who was who was in the running for this. Um, and yeah, I mean, look, it's 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 certainly a different way of doing things out there. Uh, but if you're gonna say if you're gonna take the optimistic approach uh, on this, and I know Cleveland fans never want to do that, but uh, at least you're all aligning in like one sort of camp here. Uh, and and I hate to make it as simple as like analytics guys and non-analytics guys because it, it all it, it all blends teams that you don't think do analytics do more analytics than you think. But uh, it, basically they're saying let's all get on the same page here. Uh, it's not going to be like it was Sashi and, and Hugh Jackson and they both had completely different, uh, different approaches to how they wanted to build this thing. Um, it sounds like it's going to be sort of deep Podesta's thing and then Stefanski will... Uh, will sort of sort of work with that uh eagles vp uh andrew barry is a is at least as of this taping is is sounds like he's the top candidate for for the for the vacant general manager job so um it, they're they're moving in one direction as an organization i guess that's that's sort of what you're optimistic about right now 
Right. It's the buzzword of alignment. But in Cleveland, this has been a very real problem the last few years of not <laughs> yes. every, I mean, maybe probably more than the last few years, but of not everybody being on the same page. So at least you can say that, yes, that for this new chapter, this is the way they're going. Stefanski is taking the job knowing this and presumably is all in on it. And so it'll be interesting to see how that works. And it'll be interesting to see if they're more open about it than they have been to this point, right? Like even, even still like analytics is so like shrouded in the NFL that we don't know exactly what teams are doing. I don't know now that they're all in on it across the board. Will will we hear more about it publicly, like details of how it's affecting their approach? I don't know. Yeah, all I know is that if this and this is what the Browns sort of have to um, sort of have to resist. If this goes sour early on, I don't know if you can handle another teardown. Just someone has to have like multiple years to try and build this thing. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, what Hugh Jackson had two and a half seasons, and that's an eternity in the Brown scheme yeah. of things. Every time I saw Mike Pettin in the uh, in the late game, I kept on thinking, like Mike Pettin, Mike Pettin went seven and nine with a team that, like, you know, they 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 were making them play Johnny Manziel and uh, you know Josh Gordon and and just just sort of a mess of a team that probably shouldn't have won more than like five games, and uh, he was gone a year later. He, Mike Pettin is now what four head coaches ago? Oh my God, it's ridiculous! It really is. Freddie Kitchens, Hugh Petten, right? Oh my gosh. Uh who was in between there? Who was in between Hugh and Petten? Wasn't there someone else? Well, we're really blanking who, now. Who are I was gonna say who are this is driving me nuts. Was Shermer was before uh before Petten, right? Yes, Shermer was before Petten. Um yeah, I think I think it was so we're, we're um Stefanski Kitchens. We had Greg Williams as an interim, Hugh Jackson, and then Pettin. So, yeah, like we're. I mean, it's crazy to. to it's oh, you're right. Okay, it was. It was then, Pettin to Hugh. And b- before him was Chudzinski, Shermer, then Mangini. I mean, really, yep. it's been. It's it's pretty stunning. It is. It really is. Uh, well, they're they're doing something. Um. <laughs> And I don't know. My my personal note is uh, Rich Scangarello is is out in Denver as offense coordinator. I I actually thought he was uh, really good this year with Brandon Allen and and uh, and Joe Flacco and and Drew Locke working in. But they had a chance to hire Pat Shermer and and they went in that direction. And uh, to be perfectly honest, I don't know exactly what went on behind the scenes there in Denver, but it seemed like Vic Fangio just didn't really care for. Rich Gangarello and wanted to go sort of super run heavy with that offense. And that's, I guess, what they're going to do going forward. Yeah, yeah. Rich Gangarello was the guy who, when the 49ers made the midseason trade with Garoppolo, or for Garoppolo, spent all hours trying to get him up to speed, get him able to play. So when I think of, and I think he did an excellent job in that role. So yeah, clearly just wasn't a fit between him and Fangio in Denver. Cause yeah. I, I agree with you, Gary. I think he's well-respected uh, in the, in the league. So. Yeah. Well, I am, uh, I'm really praying that Rich Scangarello uh, pops up somewhere else. He's a Connor guy too. Okay. Connor, Connor's going to build a staff with Scangarello and and Tobe and um, 
you know, a couple, couple other guys who'll pluck around from from around the league. Maybe get like an XFL expansion team or something like that and build a <laughs> dynasty. Headed by Dave Tobe, of course, though. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. That's a, that's a wrap. We will have plenty all week on the upcoming conference title games, but uh, that'll do it for now. The MMQB Monday Morning NFL Podcast is Jenny Brentis and me, Gary Grambling. We are produced by Shelby Royston. SI's executive producer of podcasts is Scott Brody. Ben Eagle is director of editorial projects and product. Mark Ravick is emeritus editor of the MMQB. Andy Benoit is the founder of the MMQB NFL Podcast. Keep up with our entire lineup of podcasts five days a week by subscribing to the MMQB NFL Podcast for free on Apple Podcasts. And while you're there, please do us a favor and leave a rating and review. It really does help other people find the show, which is also available on Spotify, Radio.com, Stitcher, SI.com, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.